This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard of Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. Well, uh, welcome to our podcast uh, in regards to the stroke belt. And before we get started, I have to tell you a little bit that regards is really an abbreviation for reason for geographic and racial differences in strokes. And basically, it's a large observational study of risk factors for strokes in adults 45 years or older. We have several principal investigators here. Uh, We have Dr. Suzanne Judd from UAB. We have Dr. Jennifer Manley from Columbia University, uh, Mary Cushman from the University of Vermont, uh, and Dr. Virginia Howard, and, uh, and Dr. George Howard, both from the University of Alabama and Birmingham. It's a study that is co-founded by the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes and the National Institute on Aging. And it's one of the most collaborative uh, team uh, publication and ancillary study and data sharing. So this kind of collaborative approach to research has led to almost 700 publications and multiple important ancillary studies, such as heart attack uh, in regards MI, uh, studies in kidney disease, and and more recently in COVID. And and it's probably one of the most important studies in our time here in the South. And uh, for this reason, we're quite honored to have um, one of the principal investigators uh, Dr. George Howard, you know, with us. George, thank you for t- taking the time and being here with us today. Well, we are completely honored to be here, and uh, thank you and, and your audience uh, for the uh, interest in what we're trying to accomplish. We appreciate uh, we appreciate being here. Dr. George Howard is a senior scientist at the UEB Center for Study of Community Health and the School of Public Health as well as a senior scientist on so many comprehensive centers that I think that I don't have the time to mention them all. He's also professor of medicine and preventive medicine and is a very accomplished, you know, scientist. So let's talk about our problem, George. Let's start with stroke. We know that stroke is a sudden interruption of blood flow to the brain caused usually by a clogged or ruptured blood vessel. We know there's two types of strokes. We have the ischemic stroke, that is caused by a blockage, usually usually a blood clot in the artery to the brain. And less commonly, it can be a hemorrhagic stroke as a result of a head injury or an aneurysm, which is also a ballooning of one of the blood vessel wall. It can manifest itself as a, a sudden numbness or tingling, especially on one side. It can manifest also as a slurred speech, blurred vision, dizziness, confusion, fainting, or severe unexplained headache. Approximately 800,000 Americans suffer from a stroke every year, and over 130,000 will die from it. And there seems to be some clusters in the stroke in the United States. So, uh, George, let's start by, you know, what is the stroke belt? Right. Uh, Well, thanks so much. The the stroke belt is is an area in the southeastern United States uh, uh, where basically the, the the number of stroke deaths, the deaths from stroke, is how what we what uh, the, those data come from vital statistics and um, the exact region is ill defined. It's been uh, different people define it differently, uh, but uh, almost every 
one uh, uh, would include eight states, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, and Louisiana. Um, and so uh, uh, the death records that are collected and annually reported um, in 1960-ish, uh, a wonderful gentleman, Nemont Brahani, basically almost tangentially noted that more people were dying from stroke in, in the southern part of the United States. Uh, and that was really the, 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 the generation of the stroke belt or the first time it was noted. Um, and it's existed probably before then. The data don't go back further, but so, so it, this region of high stroke mortality has existed for um, uh, at least 60 or 70 years. Um, and despite huge drops in the number of people dying from stroke overall, the excess mortality in the southern region of the United States as a proportion has remained remarkably resilient. It is almost unchanged over 70 years. We talk also a little bit about the stroke belt buckle. What is that exactly? Is that is just a catchy phrase? Or? <laughs> no, no, actually, um, it's sort of the super stroke belt, for lack of a, a better way to describe it. Uh, even within the stroke belt, there's considerable heterogeneity in, in stroke deaths. For example, Atlanta, uh, large urban areas, Charlotte, uh, tend to be uh, a little bit lower than, than more rural areas in the stroke belt. The buckle of the stroke belt is up and down the coastal plain of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, uh, down by the ocean. And uh, it has uh, uh, stroke mortality 20 or 30% higher than even the rest of the stroke belt. Uh, and so it's the, the area of, of the highest stroke mortality. Great. So we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the regards to this. So let's step back, you know, 20 years ago in 2002, when you set out, you know, this, this, um, this incredible study, the regards study, um, you know, what was your, what, what was your hypothesis then? And how did you go about doing that study? I mean, well, it, it, uh, well 20 years ago, um, uh, there was uh, remarkably few data uh, to try to understand why more people were dying in this part of the country. And um, a lot of that is, is how medical research is done. It tends to be done by, by medical centers that are in large urban areas, frequently in the, uh, in the northern, northeastern or, or California. Um, and, uh, and if you want to study geographic heterogeneity, you know, differences between regions, um, then basically you need to do a study that collects people from everywhere, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, and, um, uh, and at that time, most of the uh, observational studies were using what I'll call the Framingham paradigm. Basically, you have a clinic, you bring people into the clinic, you evaluate them and you wait um, for them to develop strokes so that you can understand. But if you're interested in geographic heterogeneity, you need clinics everywhere, everywhere, um, which becomes prohibitively expensive. A study can't be done like that. It's just, it's not affordable. Um, and so regards did something unusual. Um, what we did was uh, uh, we recruited a national cohort, uh, over 30,000 people, um, and we did that by a combination of mail and telephone. Um, and so we sent out a letter, said, we'll be calling you in two weeks. And two weeks later, we called them. And 
said, would you like to be in our study? We were amazed um, that, that over a third of the people said they would be in the study. And a lot of people think that's a low response rate. I assure you it is a remarkably high response rate. Um, but the trick of regards is uh, the question, do you have undiagnosed hypertension? Uh, turns out to be a really ineffective uh, research question. It do doesn't work well. The, the, and so somehow we have to lay hands on these people and actually take their blood pressure and actually get their glucose and actually do an ECG on them to find out if they have atrial failure. Um, and so the trick of regards is we partnered with the companies that are doing life insurance physicals. Um, and so uh, if you or I were to uh, buy a very large life insurance policy, the, the company would send mainly a nurse, but a health professional, most commonly nurse, to our home um, to evaluate um, our, our, our you know, hypertension, diabetes, same things we're interested in in cardiovascular epidemiology prior to selling us the life insurance. Um, and so the trick of regards is we use those same companies to send out people to the participants' homes to do direct measures. Um, and at that time, that was a very novel study design. Uh, we're very proud of the fact that a lot of other studies have emulated us and are using that approach now uh, because it allows you to get a uh, uh, a more uh, uh, geographically heterogeneous population. Um, and so we have been in the homes of, uh, of 30,000 people uh, collect that have been recruited from 1,688 of the 3,000 counties in the United States um, and gives us a true national sample so that we can look at the risk factors for stroke and how they differ between regions in particular, how they differ between the stroke belt, stroke buckle, and the rest of the nation. But it seems like you were ahead of the time. You know, we talked now, particularly since COVID, we talk about the different uh, the disparity of care, and 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 uh, this is something you were started to study twenty years ago. It seems like you you, you tried to study particularly a higher population of patients. You know, from the stroke belt, you know, more African-American and also more women, which which is usually, uh, you know, the minority. And uh, we try and tend to underrepresent, you know, that patient wow. population in most. Well, studies. I mean, uh, you're giving us a lot of credit. The, really, the heroes and heroines of all of these studies are the participants. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, these wonderful people, like I've said, uh, you know, I'm from a town of 8,000 people, so I think of 30,000 people being a lot of people. Um, and uh, But they have led us into their home, and they've uh, given us the privilege to follow them now for two decades. Um, and with their help, uh, we've learned a tremendous amount about what's driving the disparities in stroke. Um, um, and and uh, and and we we deeply appreciate their generosity. Yeah, pretty amazing. The study involves careful follow-up of this very large patient population, 56% coming from the stroke belt, 42% black, and 55% women, and really kind of designed to root out the cause of this vascular disease, including stroke, and potentially, I guess, leading to prevention. Because the well, but we hope. I mean, the reason to understand 
what's driving this is to hopefully change something and fix it. Uh, and uh, but and we think that we're making progress in that way. A number of trials have already been spun off um, out of this in different ways and uh, um, and different studies and and. Um, uh, uh, and both looking at the black-white differences in stroke, which are also a horrible disparity, horrible disparity with African-Americans um, and Southern non so Interestingly, when we started the study, um, there, there are two ways why more people could die from stroke in the South, um, the, uh, or more Blacks could die from stroke. Um, the first reason is uh, that they could be having more strokes. It could be that Southerners are having more strokes and Blacks are having more strokes. Or alternatively, it could be the case fatality. Maybe they're having worse strokes and dying of it more rapidly once they have the disease. And so even very simple questions like, is it that Southerners are having more strokes or is it that Southerners are dying more frequently once they have them? Um, uh, we think are, are really important questions because if it's if it's that the Southerners are having more strokes, then the interventions that we're speaking of need to be directed towards community prevention. How do we stop the stroke from happening in the first place? You know, the horse is out of the barn. If if, if it's higher incidence, higher more people having it, the horse is out of the barn once more people have it in the south. If it's a case fatality, then instead of community interventions, we need to be thinking about interventions that are hospital-based that would improve the outcome once somebody has a stroke. You know, and perhaps it's uh, um, and um, perhaps it's you know that that uh, 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 hospital care is not quite as good, or the travel time to hospitals are greater in the south, and and that's why more people are, are dying in the hospital from stroke in the south and. Um, and so we, you know, that type of question really directs even where the intervention should be going. Well, you bring already some very important contributing factor to the stroke belt, I guess, which is the demographic, you know, having uh, a higher percentage of, of um, black is this contributing, you know, to increase in, in, in stroke uh, in the black belt. But in the stroke belt, uh, but also what about the, the prevalence of the risk factors? Like it seems like in the South, we have more hypertension, we have more diabetes, we have more obesity. Uh, and therefore, could that be the reason for increased stroke? And absolutely, absolutely. You're, you're spot on. Uh, obesity is a, a funny issue. Um, it, it turns out there's um, an urban legend that uh, Southerners are more obese than other people from other regions. Um, yeah, and those that impression comes from something called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance uh, System, BRFSS, which is an interview of people um, that, that asks them all types of questions, including how much do you weigh? Um, and it turns out um, the question, how much do you weigh, is the second most frequently lied about question um, in, in all of survey research, number one being how much money do you make? Um, and, um, and so the, the, those are the two big lie about questions. And it, it turns out the Southerners are actually not more obese. If you look at the areas that when you put people on scales, you know, the scales don't lie. Um, and the scales say that, uh, that the uh, mid-central um, uh, Great Plains is the Iowa, Minnesota, believe it or not, is the most obese region in the nation. 
But still, the, the data for hypertension and diabetes, there are three huge stroke risk factors. There are a lot of stroke risk factors. There are three risk factors that have what's called the, the biggest population attributable risk or a proportion of the risk attributable to these risk factors. And it's hypertension, diabetes, and cigarette smoking. Um, and, uh, and at least hypertension and diabetes are more prevalent in the South uh, for both blacks and whites. Um, and it seems like it ought to be in the Midwest where there's more obesity. The obesity is the thing that would probably be driving the hypertension and diabetes. But um, there are other reasons perhaps to, to be hypertensive, including diet and salt intake and a lot of other things. So um, it's clear that, that, that Southerners do have more hypertension and diabetes. Smoking is high, but it's not the highest in the nation in the South either. Um, and so that, that's clearly a contributing factor. And probably what's driving this is um, uh, sort of a, a mix of things that a number of which seem to be falling disproportionately on Southerners. But, uh, but clearly hypertension and diabetes is in that list of things that mm -hmm. we're blessed with in the South more than other people. Yeah, I guess we're also blessed by our cooking. And um, you know, I think one of your one of your colleague uh, Suzanne Judd uh, did a lot of work and has got a lot of publication on on some of the lifestyle choices that we make in the South. And and she looked at um, different dietary pattern and and apparently, you know, the Southern dietary pattern is really the winner when it comes to heart disease and stroke. It it really is, and a lot of other things, unfortunately, as as I was. Uh, you know, you, you can listen to uh, to my accent and say, uh, you know, this is basically everything my mama fed me when I was growing up. And um, but basically fried foods and uh, high fat milk and uh, um, basically everything that's that's bad for you, added sugar, added salt. Um, and uh, and 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 Suzanne Judd has been, I think, um, just a. Um, really discovered something important. There are a lot of different ways to measure diet. Diet is a very hard thing to quantify. And you have the Mediterranean diet and the healthy eating index and a lot of other different ways to, to quantify diet. She, um, I guess the word is invented but or discovered, I don't know which, this, uh, this, this eating pattern uh, and figured out a way to quantify it. And it, um, it not only is predictive of heart attack and stroke, but cognitive decline, uh, development of sepsis, development of hypertension, development of uh, diabetes, um, and uh, um, and Southerners eat more of it. But the group that actually eats um, more of it than even Southerners are African Americans, uh, regardless of where they live. African Americans nationwide, and uh, and this uh, and, and actually this Southern diet. Um, explains 50% of the black-white difference in the development of hypertension in men and 25% of the black-white difference in the development of hypertension in women. Um, and so um, I'll say I don't eat this diet anymore. Um, uh, and perhaps other people should try to avoid it also. Obviously, I was not from the South, so the, the, you, have, you know, I had to kind of... A, see and study a little bit uh, what my patients were eating. And, and as you mentioned, you know, the fried food, the organ meat, you know, yes. and also the added fat, you know, bacon into, you know, everything, you know, and the, 
uh, you know, just to add, you know, some, uh, I guess, uh, some taste and flavor, you know, this processed meat also that they're all eating and those sweetened, you know, beverages and a lot of bread. And it's just right. like, you know, just uh, a recipe completely. for disaster. Completely. Well, I will say it tastes good. I will say yeah, it, it does. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, particularly with the Labor Day, uh, you know, weekend, uh, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of ribs and, and uh, barbecue being eaten you know, in the South and probably in a lot of places mm -hmm. in the United States. But there's another lifestyle uh, choice that we don't make very good choices here in the South, and, and it's being uh, sedentarity. And it seems like uh, we're not very active in the South, and, and it appears that sedentarity does increase quite a bit your risk of stroke. I mean, yes, absolutely. And like I said, it's um, um, they're, they're, you know, the South has drawn the bad hand on several of these risk factors. And, and that's yet another um, uh, factor where we tend not to do well. And um, I'm right now, I'm, I happen to be in Eastern North Carolina as we speak, which is right, right in the heart of the buckle of the stroke belt. And even to, even today was uh, 92 degrees outside and the humidity is 92 also. And uh, uh, and not really, but that's what it feels like. And uh, and it's, it's hard to get outside and do things. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Well, the, uh, there is actually uh, a very, very important you know, topic in, in this, that is the socioeconomic status and how it can influence you know, the rate of strokes at Belt. And again, you know, 20, you, you started a long time ago looking at those social determinants of health. Uh, and how the lower socioeconomic status in the South could play a major or a significant role, you know, in, in the increase in stroke. It, absolutely. And there's so many different pathways. I mean, not, I mean, the knee jerk is access to healthcare. We think, oh, you know, lower socioeconomic status, they don't have access to, uh, to the to the healthcare systems that, uh, that, that wealthier people do. And it's really, Quite a bit more than that. I mean, it influences um, your eating pattern. I mean, it turns out the Southern diet is also a cheap diet. If you want to eat, um, you know, a, a, a very high quality diet, it's going to cost you a lot more money than if you want to eat a, a high fat diet. And so, um, and so there, there are so many different pathways, particularly in African Americans, where it's probably related to stress and depression also. And so um, it, it is a, a powerful force, a powerful force. Stress, discrimination, and, and, um, and I guess if we were to kind of include uh, environmental factors, um, talking about maybe hygiene and, and you know, poor, uh, you know, water quality, and, you know, which uh, could include who knows what kind of elements could contribute also to some of these problems. Yeah, the, the regard seems to say that the environmental exposures um, might not be the, it might be a driver of stroke, but not of stroke disparities. The, uh, uh, but no, it's probably related to the stroke, the, the, the level of stroke of everybody, but probably not related to the disparities that between people differences in stroke, which um, makes it more confusing. I, I guess if you think about water quality, um, uh, I'm in a town that is on municipal water and the rich folks drink the same water as the poor folks. And um, so it's, it's, you know, smooths out 
that way. Yeah. You, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, maybe this inflammation, and uh, I don't know whether you're looking primarily at inflammation of chronic disease, and, and also you mentioned also the role of infection. Right. Essentially. Yeah, well, just a systemic infection. I mean, there, there, there are data that even say even dental in, uh, infection is related to stroke risk, um, um, which might, again, tie back into socioeconomic status where, where there are considerable differences in the, in the dental health of, of more wealthy versus less wealthy people. But yeah, so I, within the study, we have different measures of systemic uh, inflammation, uh, C-reactive protein and white blood cell counts are the ones that come to, to mind first. And, and they turn out to be pretty related to stroke risk. It, it, that, that in particular is a challenging area because, uh, 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 you know, basically uh, inflammation is a driver of atherosclerosis, but atherosclerosis is also an inflammatory process. And so it becomes a, a circular uh, process where the inflammation causes the development of athro, but athro causes the rising of inflammation. Um, and so it's a sort of a positive feedback system. I know that as part of the study, uh, your group has taken, uh, you know, has drawn a lot of blood and you have some, a lot of information. Uh, do you have any information regarding genetics? Yes, yes, we do. We're, we're very lucky. Our, our, our uh, laboratory is led by Dr. Mary Cushman at the University of Vermont, um, uh, simply a brilliant scientist and wonderful colleague. Um, and so we, um, uh, the study was initially funded to, uh, to, to not include genetics, but we were smart enough to, to draw the Buffy coat that would allow us to subsequently um, come back and get the genetics at a, a later time. And so uh, this was a rob from Peter to pay Paul um, operation early to make sure that, that we had those. Um, and so the, uh, the, there's a, a, an entire genetics working group within the study um, led by, um, by, by Dr. Ryan Irwin, who's also from UAB and, and Leslie Lang from Colorado. Um, and, um, and so, uh, yes, we do. Not my area. I tell people I can't even spell DNA. I mean, it's. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, George, if you were to kind of summarize your 20 years of research, you know, toward the understanding of the stroke belt, I mean, what, what would be your main points? What have you find out? Well, I, I, I will say, first of all, it appears to be driven by incidents more than case fatality. Um, and the implications of that is that we need to get out of our hospitals and into our communities to, if we really want to make a difference. We need to be thinking differently about how to prevent disease. I think the, um, the holy grail, particularly of, of racial disparities, this, this statement's more racial disparities, but, but, but also, but also uh, urban rural, um, is, um, is, uh, is to go upstream. Uh, we need, you know, my, my career is focused on disparities in stroke research. And as I've done this, I've realized I've sort of wasted a lot of my career um, by, uh, by not focusing on racial disparities in stroke risk factors. We need to be going back and trying to figure out what it is that, that makes African-Americans and makes Southerners more likely to be hypertensive. 
Um, about half, then uh, I'm slipping into talking about racial disparities instead of geographic disparities, forgive me, but about half the racial disparity, half the excess in blacks is driven by the prevalence of hypertension, which means that if we want to fix that half of the disparity, we need to stop African-Americans from developing more hypertension, um, which is a very bold goal. I mean, that's not that's not a let's do it by Tuesday kind of thing. That's a we need to be thinking very carefully about, about how to do it. Same thing holds for Southerners. Um, and so, uh, um, the you know, what is it that makes Southerners more likely to be hypertensive? Uh, and what changes can be made and what and whether or not they can be made at the individual level. You know, if you earlier you were talking about lifestyle choices, um, boy, that's a hard thing to change. You know, um, I, turns out I'm overweight. I know it's real bad for me and I try to lose weight all the time and I seem to fail a lot. Um, and so, we, you know, we need to, to be working at the individual level, but also at the population level. Um, you know, what can be done either through policy or other interventions that might um, change hypertension? I'm, you know, if, if you look in England, Great Britain, they took a third of the salt out of their processed foods at the, uh, at the you know, at, at the government level. And they, they did it very, very well. They did it slowly. So nobody noticed, all, you know, all of a sudden it didn't become bland. They, every year they took out a little bit more. Um, and basically nobody notices it. But cornflakes in Great Britain are different than cornflakes in America. Um, and so there's a lot to be done along those lines. This is primordial, uh, you know, uh, prevention, that's for sure. So certainly the, the risk factor burden is really kind of a big, and particularly with hypertension, it seems like, you know, one of the main focus. Yeah. I have to say that uh, you and and uh, Dr. Virginia, you know, your wife, really wrote a wonderful, you know, focus update in cerebral vascular disease and stroke in 2020. Uh, that should be a must read, you know, in 20 years of progress toward understanding the stroke belt and really enjoyed that, that article, uh, George. So uh, where, where do we go from here? I mean, what is the uh, future and, and where is the research directed? Because, you know, this study is still ongoing. The regards right. still going. Well, I mean, it, it turns out, I, I think that we are, um, I think America's at an inflection point in health right now, cardiovascular health in particular. Um, I mean, stroke mortality has been declining since 1900, not 900, not 1990, but 1900. Um, a steady decline for the last century um, up until um, three years ago, four years ago, uh, where now it's beginning to go back up again, uh, which is, uh, uh, and, and heart disease might be going back up again also in Perhaps this obesity epidemic driving higher levels of, uh, of of diabetes and hypertension. No one really knows for sure. Um, but even life expectancy in America is decreasing now, um, which is the first time it's done this in um, again decades. You know, basically, uh, you know the. The last time there was a, an absolute decrease in, in life expectancy was during the Second World War for obvious reasons. 
Um, but, um, but if you talk about health issues, the life expectancy is getting shorter. And so what we're doing in regards, hopefully, hopefully we're, we're preparing the ground under uh, Dr. Judd's leadership to, um, to get uh, a, a new cohort of people 45 to 65 collected now. So we have the people in the original cohort collected in 2000, and now we're going to get the next cohort collected in probably 2025, so 25 years later. Um, and it, it really raises the question about what is the temporal change in the risk factor pattern and relationships in these two periods with this inflection point of health changing right in the middle. Um, um, and so we're very excited about that. And uh, uh, if you know people on review committees, you can speak positively for us. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> But no, but we feel like we're well positioned to try to understand this. This is, I, I'm making a little bit of humor of it, but, uh, um, but um, this is serious. I mean, something's happening that's, um, a mystery, a mystery. Right. Well, we're very fortunate to have, you know, people like you and, and some of your colleagues to really try to, um, you know, tackle this problem and to try to find the reasons uh, for geographic and racial differences in strokes and vascular disease and heart attack and everything. And we have to thank you for that. Dr. Well, George Howard. We're honored to be part of it. We're delighted that the, that, that the School of Public Health is leading this uh, important mission. Absolutely. And, and uh, we have to thank you, um, you know, George, for your incredible work and the work of your colleagues at the School of Public Health at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and its, and its collaborative uh, universities around the United States. Uh, thanks for the regards and giving us a new look onto the stroke belt. Right. And I, we want to, the entire study wants to thank uh, you and your audience Um there's uh, no reason to do this kind of work and keep it under the the, the, the bushel um, basket. Uh, and so the, the work that you're doing in uh, um, uh, spreading the word of what might be important and what might be changed is, uh, is critical to making the changes that we all hope happen. It's all about awareness. Thank you, George. Appreciate taking the Honor time. To be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. Have a good day. Good day. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.